Welcome to the book study. I'm your host and instructional coach, Erica Warren, and I'm excited to learn together as we dissect some hot topics in education. Each season of the book study, we go chapter by chapter through a book, analyzing the author's perspective, the ideas pushed forward, and how these ideas operate in classrooms and schools. In this episode, we dive into chapter four of A Search for Common Ground by Drs. Frederick Hess and Pedro Naguera. I had a tough time with Hess in this chapter. Although he made some reasonable points, I find much of his premises to be rooted in unchecked personal privilege and bad faith arguments. I'll start with this excerpt from his first letter. He says, I fear that NCLB also fueled a fixation on the short-term movement of reading and math scores with unfortunate consequences for both equity and excellence. I agree with him here. But then he goes on to argue that this is the reason school choice is appealing. He says, I think a big part of school choice's appeal is his ability to empower marginalized families whose children lack access to good schools. Here's where it falls apart for me. Access to good schools does not change solely because parents now get a choice to send their kids elsewhere. Because access, especially for those in marginalized communities, is also rooted in geography. And the logistics of driving my kid across town to the better school when I don't have a car and I have to be at work just don't add up. Hess's argument for school choice is clearly rooted in a misunderstanding of the obstacles that plague the most impacted communities. School choice is great for marginalized people like me who quite frankly have job flexibility and a car or someone who can reliably transport my kids to and from school. It does little for the families that don't have access to these, these things. And what of the fact that school zones are drawn by school boards who, instead of zoning for equitable access, create zones that appease some vocal parents at the expense of others? What of the fact that the worst off, off schools are in the worst off neighborhoods? Take it a step further. The argument he makes on school funding later does not address these factors. No, his argument once again seeps of, it's not that we haven't given it to them, it's that they haven't done right by what they've been given. He goes on to argue about family choices, and once again, I found it very difficult to take him seriously. His understanding of poverty, anti-blackness, and geography is so simplistic as to be laughable. He believes these patterns are because these folks just woke up one morning and decided they weren't going to try hard enough. Additionally, his premise on black marriage is flawed. The CDC released a report several years ago providing evidence that black fathers are more involved in their children's lives than any other race. Does marriage matter if daddy doesn't actually participate in child rearing? Here's why these reductionist bad faith arguments bother me so much. They ignore the historical context and allow for the types of deficit thinking that allows for the achievement gap to be a persistent problem. I work with a special educator who tells me every year how much her students can't read and she reads everything to them. Observation after observation, I ask her when the kids will read the text, and she tells me over and over that they can't do it. The question I finally asked her was this, if they never read on anything on their own, how will they go from can't to can? I find discussions on the achievement gap to be wholly problematic. We define achievement on very narrow, culturally destructive ways, and then point to the gap in achievement and blame the parents, as Hess does here, and the kids themselves. I like Ladson Billings' framing of it as an opportunity gap better, 
but even that leans too heavily on this narrow definition of success. I acknowledge that having this data supports the advocacy work that I do, but also find this data and this argument still holds whiteness, capitalism, and individuality in gross esteem. Near the end of the chapter, Noguera notes that race and poverty are not obstacles in achievement in Canada as they are in the United States. While I'm not certain of the extent to which this is true, I am aware of indigenous groups in Canada that fight for educational equity, so I don't think this is as true as perhaps Noguera is suggesting here, but this should be the goal. One's economic and racial background should not be predictive of academic outcomes which means schools aren't adding much value as they stand. This is what the achievement gap should really focus on, not end of year test scores, but the predictability of race and poverty on those scores. When we start looking at the data, not as judgment of teachers and students, but as a resource to tell us how much value schools are adding, then we will start to have some different conversations and I think start to see some real progress. That's all for today. Next week, we will dive into chapter five on testing and accountability, and I'll have much to say on that for sure. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Join the online Twitter conversation at hashtag thebookstudy, and you could find me on Twitter at Mrs. Erica Reads. That's M-R-S-E-R-I-C-A-R-E-A-D-S. I'll see y'all next week.